I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So I lost my virginity last week. What kind of virginity? Hi, it's Lainey. Hi, it's Joanna. And welcome to Show Your Work. What kind of virginity? Oh, well, this past week, I, in anticipation of, you know, what everybody knows, I watched, for the first time, I watched a Star Wars movie, like, all the way through, voluntarily focused on what was happening, not seeing it in piecemeal, not walking in and out of a dorm room. It was really exciting. It was super fun. Which one? Uh, The Force Awakens. Like, I hadn't seen it, and in anticipation of The Last Jedi, not that I was going to necessarily see The Last Jedi, right? but it was sort of, it was, it was exciting to sort of go, oh, okay, this is kind of for me. It's not just, so basically the, uh, the longer story is that, as I say, I absorbed Star Wars through, like, dorm room mansplainers and, like, you know, various boyfriends and whatnot. Uh, and then uh, I have a I have a person in my house, uh, a a recent podcast guest, uh, who's a Star Wars obsessive. Yeah. So I've been absorbing it. But then I watched The Force Awakens of my own volition as an adult. It was very exciting. So you but and so you go into Force Awakens knowing just through like I knew I knew like I've seen like storybook simplifications, right? Right. So I know who. Like Luke and Leia are twins yeah. and their parents are whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I know that Leia is, you know, put the secret plans into R2. Like right. I know all that stuff. <laughs> like. <laughs> right. Okay. So now that you've seen Force Awakens, are you definitely going to see The Last Jedi? Like I'm seconds away. The fact that I didn't see it this weekend is just due to giant scheduling. Like this was already going to be a problem right. weeks ago. It's just a packed weekend. Uh, yeah, no, as soon as humanly possible. And is the person in your life the one who has made an appearance on this show before and who's an obsessive? Like, is he going to go no, see? Th- okay. He's not invited. So that right. person uh, is four. So... <laughs> Yeah, no, he's not invited. Uh, so he will, uh, he can absorb it via like, I don't know, mo- like tie-ins in the right cereal aisle for the next several years. Are you prepared for like, because we have a friend whose children are also Star Wars obsessives and she abstained from it until like, I think just last year or two years ago. Okay, let's get real. It's her fault. Um, that friend, Lorella, who you've heard about if you read the blog, uh, is the single reason that there was, uh, Star Wars paraphernalia in my home, like, aged for a child. Right. Uh, so she's directly responsible for this obsession. Yeah. Uh, so am I going to abstain from... Or, sorry, no, I mean, she abstained from it for a long time. And I remember that, like, when she finally sat down and watched it, her kids were old enough, like, literally to be her tutors. 
So she was she was tutored in Star Wars by her sons. Right. Um, so I'm asking you, like, one day are you prepared for your child to be, like, the know-it-all Oh, Star he's Wars. already a mansplainer. Um, <laughs> he already wants to, like, go as really obscure characters in right. the, you know, for Halloween. Like, you really wanted to be Qui-Gon Jinn. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, for the uninitiated, that person is played by Liam Neeson yeah. in the movie. So it's not a big deal. Um so absolutely. But the other reason that I was excited to watch it was that Star Wars is, uh, in the Star Wars universe, is used in screenwriting and like a lot of screenwriting books and instructionals and things as sort of the gold standard of the hero's journey. Like all these books use it as how to tell a story. And I'm both much happier to understand that in an organic way. And I think it's bullshit that all these sort of screenwriting instructionals you ever read have only very dude movies as as touchstones. Uh, and I think we'll touch on that a little bit later in the podcast. But that's another reason why I was really excited is because it is such a it's such a writer's room touchstone to be like, oh yeah, yeah, then he's gonna, yeah, yeah, yeah. He'll just like Luke and Leia all over this, that'll be fine. And then like, <laughs> right. yeah. So Bruce is going to Obi-Wan out of there and then we move on to the next scene. Right. That sort of shorthand comes up a lot. Well, that is a little bullshit. It's totally bullshit. Yeah. Um, uh, Goodfellas comes up a lot too. And uh, if I think of others, we'll sort of pepper them through. Uh, but yeah, and so I'm happy to uh, hear it from that from that perspective as well while acknowledging that it's not the only hero's journey. That's really interesting. Like one day – in this a grand future, do you think alongside, oh, then he'll Obi-Wan out of this, will we also say, um, but then uh, we'll – I'm trying to think of an equivalent, and I guess this is the point. This is the What point. is the equivalent? Uh, I guess uh, – and then our characters will – what is our equivalent? I'm trying to come up with one. I mean, it's so funny because the ones that are memorable. I was on a uh, I was on a thread yesterday where people were talking about rom com tropes, you know, like uh, uh, things that happen in every romantic comedy. So the race through the airport at the end, right. or so and so misrepresents themselves and then says, "Well, I was afraid you wouldn't like the real me." Uh-huh. And all I was thinking was that my favorite romantic comedy is my best friend's wedding, which pointedly doesn't have any of these. Right. Um, which I love. But so this is, yeah, maybe this is why we don't have a lot of touchstones. I think what we do have is you can say like she, you know, she's going to Tiffany Haddish all over this thing. Like I think there are performances. Right. Oh, maybe there's like a Hunger Games in here. And then she's going to Katniss out of there or... Maybe. I'm not sure that's a uh, a real universal story yet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think, and also I don't know if that generation has spoken yet. You know what I mean? Like the whatever 12 year old when Katniss first came out in about five years. But what that says is that we don't have a, 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 this generation doesn't have a a touchstone like that, other than one of my favorites, Eat the Fish, Bitch, which is also <laughs> Julia Roberts uh, from August Osage County, but uh, which is maybe not a full-on touchstone. Um, well, 
I mean, you mentioned Julia Roberts. This is a very weak segue. I mean, I'll always mention Julia Roberts. So have you seen Wonder yet? I haven't yet. It's on the holiday list. Oh, have you read Wonder yet? Maybe that <laughs> should be the question I ask you. Well, no, I haven't. Part of the reason I ask this is because Wonder was like a surprise success at the box office, supposed to come out in April, and then they pushed it for holiday season slash maybe award season. It did a very, very, very healthy box office. I've written about it. And in response, I've actually heard from a lot of parents and librarians saying, you know, totally get it, like, um, totally understand, you know, your theorizing about why it was successful, Julia Roberts, holiday season, feel good, the blindside equivalent. But also, you should know that this is a very popular book, especially among parents. Um, as a, like, I heard from two librarians, and they were like, as a librarian, I can tell you the book is always on the wait list, and the people who love this book love this book. Right. It's a real touchstone for, mm-hmm. like – coming of age, right? In a certain way. Yep. I I mean, I love that, but I I also wonder you you don't have a but in the phrase that you just said, but it, it feels sometimes uh and come at me librarians or readers. Sometimes there's a little bit of wishing that that book was still yours and a little bit still a secret. Uh you know, once it's a movie starring like Jacob Tremblay and Julia Roberts, it's not quite an a secret as much anymore. I haven't seen – I haven't read the book. I haven't seen I haven't the movie. I haven't read it yet either. I don't know that it's a movie for me. Like, I I don't have a personal pull to it. But the only me factor in there, the pull to it, is, of course, Julia Roberts. I try to see Julia Roberts as much as I can. And I also thought that she'd have more of an award season presence. But it's been a really strong year. Yeah. Like across the board strong, competitive, solid films, great performances, and to the point where there's no actual front runner for best picture. Well, because I think what's amazing about that is that, uh, you know, as we sort of dig into awards season, into a lot of awards topics that we have right now, there's no awards bait. Like, let's be real for a second with all respect to Wonder, which I haven't read but now will this evening. Uh, it's a more traditional movie in terms of being probably heartwarming and about the triumph of family and that kind of thing. Uh, you know, maybe it's the same type of movie as Stepmom was so many years ago, just to draw that parallel. None of the movies that are in contention this year are a full stamped it sort of genre box tick. Does that make sense? There's no biopic that is like a heroic biopic. You know, in in years past, it was Daniel Day-Lewis as uh, Lincoln was sort Mm -hmm. of a a gimme. Or I guess you have Gary Oldman in Darkest Hour as Winston Churchill. But I don't think that film is – that film's probably a dark horse for best picture. It's his performance that is 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 a front runner. Yeah, but also I – and I say this uh, again, not yet having seen The Darkest Hour – Uh, If we did not have a contemporary Winston Churchill portrayal uh, in John Lithgow on on, Mm -hmm. uh, The Crown, that might be more of a thing. But I feel as though there's a shadow of somebody else has just done it before you. 
uh, that that has a, a comparison thing. Yeah. But there's very, very few of the big films that we're talking about, about uh, about Get Out and uh, Three Billboards yep. and uh, Lady Bird and uh, what else? Well, uh, interestingly enough, you're, I, I, I see where you're going with this and, and I totally agree in that the ones we're talking about aren't the category checkboxes. Right. And the two, the two that, do check those boxes, Darkest Hour and Dunkirk. Right. Now, Dunkirk is that thing sure. that you're yes. talking about, yes, right? Yes, exactly. A sweeping epic that's gritty and d- discusses the time and we yes. all wish we could forget, but… Not talking about it. At all. <laughs> it, although, probably, like, you know, those experts are saying, it's Christopher Nolan, it's about the Second World War, it's the checkbox of the Oscars, what they love. It is a contender, no doubt. We're just not talking about it. So, I mean, part of the thing, what I was about to say was, uh, well, yes, of course, there's still going to be old white guys in the Academy who are going to vote for that, but this is kind of where we are, right? This is the award season where we are. This started uh, before, now, uh, two years ago with sort of the inference of Oscars so white. Uh, There's been a diversification push inside the Academy and maybe on the outside in terms of sort of what films get get a lot of buzz or prominence or notice. Uh, and of course, the more recent, uh, uh, you know, sexual predator uh, advent calendar, as you call it, which got a shout out on SNL last week. Don't know if you remember that. It did. It did get a, sh- uh, well, I don't know if you can call it a shout out. It got a uh, Boro? <laughs> <laughs> and it got a shout out in the New York Times. A proper shout out. Wait, it did? Yeah. When are you going to pimp that? <laughs> Here, it, let's, here's the thing, guys. Sometimes on Show Your Work, we have to be reminded to show our work. Go on. So in the New York Times, there was an article about, you know, the Hollywood sexual predator advent calendar and a shout out to me for coining the phrase. Thank you, New York Times. Well spotted, New York Times. Well done. But, uh, yeah, so in the advent, no pun intended, of of everything we know now, uh, the, the award show season is looking not different, but there's a tone. Oh, yeah. This is going to be the first award season, or is. We're in the thick of it now, yes? This is the first award season post-Harvey Weinstein slash... Everyone. (laughs) Um, And so this is why, I mean, we always care about award season, obviously, but this is why there's added interest. There is a new layer or maybe a a transformation. And we're seeing it already. No show has aired yet, but there are are some proposals that are in direct response to the conversation we've been having for the last several months. So let's talk about what we know. Uh, so all the presenters at the SAG Awards are going to be female. Yes. And uh, is it for the first time the SAG Awards has a host? Yes? Correct. Kristen uh, Bell. Right. Kristen Bell, who, I mean, Kristen Bell should be hosting award shows. That is an exactly right thing for her to be doing. Um, and then uh, the host of the Golden Globes. Seth, Seth Meyers. Right. Who, you know, won't pull any punches. I buy that. 
Some people are, I, I, I actually believe that too. I buy that too. I have gotten into disagreements with people who think that that's not going to be the case, that he's just going to play nice. No. Um, but I buy that he's going to look at the room and say shame on you. If it was another awards show, I would agree with other people, right? Like that's not the vibe at, I don't know, the Critics' Choice Awards or something. But the Golden Globes has always been a sloshy host situation, right? Like before Amy and Tina killed it for three years running, uh, which was nice continuity, uh, but which reminds me once again that uh, we haven't heard from those guys in a while. Uh-huh. Um, there was Ricky Gervais for a couple of years. And so I believe if I have my math right, that was, you know, sort of an unbroken thread of five years where you were pretty sure that jokes were going to be made. And some of them fall flat and some don't totally launch, but you knew they were going to be made. So I, I kind of buy that. And then but- we get the niceness of Jimmy Fallon. And now it's Seth Meyers. And well, Seth doesn't do Fallon on his show anyway. Like the brand of Seth Meyers is funny, but he's pretty pointed. Yeah. He has gone in consistently over the past couple of months. Uh, and proven one of the things that you have to prove if you are a host these days is that you have no brand loyalty that you will, you know, go for your friends. SNL has pointedly gone for uh, NBC uh, Matt Lauer jokes and for Louis C.K. jokes. Everybody is trying to prove, having to prove, that there are no sacred cows, right? That's right. So we have at the SEGS, as you mentioned, all female presenters – Let's take that. Let's just take that on its own. What do you think? We haven't written about it on the blog yet because we've been waiting to discuss it here. What are your thoughts? So my initial thoughts were, of course, all women. To poorly paraphrase Jill Solway from about a year ago, you could have all female presenters for the next 10 years and not totally make uh, equity for all the times when there haven't been enough women. You know, I have no problems with it from that perspective. It does seem a bit band-aidy, does it not? It does seem a bit like, oh, sorry, you can have the place this time. And given what we know about the way that people walk out on stage and they often hold hands and so forth, uh, I've been thinking a lot about a great Lauren Graham story about that that I will come back to. I feel as though it may feel, we're sisters, we're doing this together, and then indicate that, oh, you know, damages have been have been repaired. Nobody needs to worry anymore. It's all fixed. That's what I'm worried about, that it's a bit simplistic. I I, I agree. I think that my first response to was, okay, so this is what the award shows are going to try and do to address the Casey Affleck problem. Because at a certain point, we're going to, well, the whole thing with past winners coming back and presenting to current year winners. So let's be specific about what you mean by the Casey Affleck problem. So the first and foremost, the winners of the acting awards the previous years, obviously, always come back the following year to present to, like, this year's winners, right? Usually the category of the opposite sex, That's yes? right. That's why Brie Larson at the Oscars presented to Casey Affleck and did not enjoy it one bit. Still one of the greatest <laughs> moments of 2017. Right. 
So in theory, Casey Affleck would be invited to present at the Globes, at the Oscars, to this year's Best Actress. And so this is kind of a way to get around the Casey Affleck problem. Like, hey, we're having all-female presenters and, uh, you know, that way we don't have to deal with the Casey Affleck problem. I'm so impressed because I am always uh, trying to look at the cynical view of why something has happened, but that did not occur to me. It did not occur to me that this was about what if women are presented by their harassers, which could have been so possible, is so possible, will continue to be so possible. So I am impressed at the uh, at the detective work here. Well, you know, I call it, or we call it, the Hollywood Predator Advent Calendar for a reason, because we still have three months to go in this fucking thing. So you don't know. You don't know by, like, next week who the hell else is going to pop out. So to your point, like... I don't know if someone is nominated and then their presenter is, uh-oh, Dustin Hoffman. But hey. Yeah, but even if they're not somebody whose stories have come out about from 20 people, it doesn't mean that they are not somebody who harassed you. Um, you know, we have received, unfortunately or fortunately, letters from people telling us their stories, uh, letters from people entitled My Personal Harvey Weinstein. Uh, so we know and knew that, you know, there are people who are out there who are toxic and predators to given people, even if it's not yet a a mass density of people who will call them out in an article. Yep. Yet. Okay, but then you know what I started thinking about, Duanna? I was like, yeah, yeah, this is to address the Casey Affleck problem. But then I actually started thinking about the SAGs, specifically the SAGs. Right. So, so we all know that Casey Affleck almost cleaned up last year. He won the Globe. He won the Oscar, which is the big prize. I don't know if people remember that he did not win the SAG. The actors did not give their highest acting male honor to Casey Affleck. They gave it to Denzel Washington. And so it's really, really interesting if I want to be a little Pollyanna here and optimistic, looking at the actors, these are people in the know who know and have known for years all of it, the dirt, and just now or over the last few months are starting to speak. But that whisper network among the Screen Actors Guild would have been alive and ready and well. And I wonder, like, I wonder if the SAGs last year gave it to Denzel instead of Casey because it was a prelude. It could be. I mean, now my Pollyanna thing about the SAGs is that uh, the Screen Actors Guild is the Screen Actors Guild. It is exactly what it sounds like. It's only actors. You have to be in the union and probably of a certain uh, stripe to be able to vote. Not every uh, person who works in film can vote for the Oscars as a member of the Academy. You kind of have to be invited. And similarly, in the Guild, I would assume, not every actor who has their SAG card can vote. But there's a kind of equality there because they all do the same job. With the exception of a handful, Denzel Washington maybe being one of them, who direct, who can get a film off the ground uh, as producers, 
they're all kind of actors for hire. They all kind of are at the whims of the directors and the industry and so forth. There's a bit of a, of a, a, you know, a union sentiment among them. They are or do seem at that show only to be kind of all for one and doing less kissing of producers and and sort of, you know, smarming to reporters. It's them for themselves. So I buy maybe that that's the most honest, if that's a thing, that they can be. It's also where we get really interesting sort of continual processes like uh, uh, Orange is the New Black continually wins at the SAGs kind of long after it has ceased to be the the show du jour, right? Yeah. It's still a great show, uh, but it's not as popular new darling at the Globes, for example, as it was years ago. But it's something where the actors are like, oh, no, we see this. We see that this is a really difficult ensemble show, blah, blah, blah. And maybe similarly, actors see other actors in a way that we never can. Yeah. I And so given that it's the SAGs who are like, well, we're only going to have women presenting this year. I still agree with you that it is a bit of a Band-Aid solution because beyond the symbolism, then what, right? Yeah, then what? And I also think that there is power in, you know, we talked about whether Seth Meyers is going to go in and how hard he's going to go in. And then I was thinking about Kristen Bell as host who, She's hosted uh, some other award shows, uh, some of the country music awards shows in past years. Is she going to go in for the jokes? Here's the thing about Kristen Bell. She can. This is the sort of uh, deceptive bit about being tiny and blonde is that she gets in some real fucking zingers. But I almost want dudes to have to be up there on stage enduring it while she has these jokes. You know, I want the writers to be able to write jokes for the presenters where the dude has to play the straight man. It's not so many years ago that Sofia Vergara was rotating on a fucking turntable. Uh-huh. And that was part of an award show presentation. I would like for men to actually see what it would be like to be that other half of things. But, you know, that also presumes that this all-female sort of idea goes, stretches beyond the front of house to behind the camera. And I don't think that's the case. Mm -hmm. Uh, The producers and crew and team are going to be the same people they always were. Yep. I'm not maligning that because it is hard to do those shows live. They are a very, very challenging type of television. There's a reason that they themselves win television awards. Yep. But... Uh, I don't think that this is a philosophical change as much as an aesthetic one. And I like the aesthetic. You know, it's not that we, we're not here to bitch about the symbolism. Of course not. It's it's going to be great symbolism. Yeah. And I'm, yes, you're right. I'm always the one going, don't be a whatabouter, right? Like yes. don't say, but what about all the people behind the camera? Yes. No, they're doing this. It's great symbolism. We always talk about the importance of what visualization will do for motivation, for encouragement. So we, I mean, I love the symbolism, but as we've seen over the last few weeks, the symbolism has to be backed up by systemic institutional change. Um, And so this is what we, I think that this is what we have to keep talking about. Where is the systemic institutionalized change? Uh, Will, for example, I mean, 
going hand in hand with all female presenters, what will the supposed all black rule on red carpets do? So I want to talk about this a bit because the fact that it's a rule is news to me even as of today. What I had read was, you know, there's a suggestion that nominees, presenters, like that it was essentially a, not a whisper campaign per se, but an email campaign that started very grassrootsy. Hey, gals, what if we do this? Yeah. And now is spreading. Yes. To say that all, what, presenters and nominees hope to wear all black. Is it all season? Well, right now for sure because everybody's getting together their Golden Globe shit, right? That's the first show right out of the gate or the big show, the one everybody cares about. That's January 7th. Um, They're saying that all female nominees and presenters are wearing black and that calls are going out to stylists to change whatever it was that they had originally planned and now everything, uh, you know, all fittings, we want to see black clothes in the, like during the fittings, we want to see all black options. And the first article I read about this said that it was a protest movement, like an outfit of protest, uh, which I repeat because to me, it reads like mourning uh, outfits. So it's an interesting distinction. I didn't even think about using the word mourning to describe it, but I fucking love you for like putting that in my head. I'll, I'll steal it from you probably, but you're right. It, it is, it is. I mean, the last time this sort of happened, um, it was during awards season and uh, it was either… Um, it was 2003. Yeah. And it was the uh, the… The Gulf War. That's right. Uh, and it was a sort of, uh, you know, I would have to check the the history books, but the the war had broken out just a few weeks before the yes. Oscars. And the idea was that uh, there would be a toned down red carpet. Right. And toned down fashion. That's right. And nobody knew what that meant. Yes. And some people wore like these more black muted dresses. Yes. There were a lot of blazers over top of evening gowns. Mm-hmm. And then there were a lot of people who were like, I don't know what I'm doing. Anyway, here's my like silver <laughs> yeah. flapper dress. I remember Jennifer Aniston wore a pantsuit, a black pantsuit, right. wide-legged, low-cut, uh, like the jacket was low. Um, and I, I feel like that might be the closest equivalent. But to your point, Duanna, it was toned down out of respect for the fact that there were, you know, men in service, women in action that inevitably in situations like that, there are lives lost and people injured. Sure. But yeah, you're saying right now, is this a protest or is it a mourning or, you know, what does black denote? You know, and I like the idea of protest in that all of these, you know, for years, one of the things that we've all talked about is well, the women are on display. The the fashion, as we've always talked about, is part of the campaigning, is part of the uh, package presentation that gets you an award that changes who you are and how you're seen. And men just don't play in that game, right? Like yep. for years and years and years, if Casey Affleck was campaigning or Denzel Washington or anyone, they might break out a Navy suit for fun, but they didn't. 
you know, Eddie Redmayne won in a brown velvet suit after the after the kind of campaigning was done. But there's not there's not sort of a scale of how much cleavage is going to affect your award show win or not. So in that way, I see it as a protest in a way that is interesting. If they were really committed to that, you'd think they would all wear the same dress. Uh, (laughs) True. Yep. But then I wonder, of course, the other side of it. First of all, who do you think is, who is privately at home right now, like before their award show run, boiling with rage at this idea? Uh, Nicole Kidman. Oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, Reese is not super great in black either. Um, I think about, like, for example, if this was a year in which Anne Hathaway was in contention. Yeah. Anne Hathaway never wears black. It's something I love about her. She did not default to the black dress ever. Yeah. Uh, And as a dark-haired woman like Anne Hathaway, it doesn't always work uh, the way it can in others. So I, I get that. But, like, if this was an Anne Hathaway year... She would be absolutely politically behind it and so annoyed from a pa- fashion perspective. <laughs> well, like, that's one of the angles here, right? Like, what if you just don't want to? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we have talked a lot here about, and on the show and on the blog, about how fashion is actually an asset, one of the rare assets for women in Hollywood over men. And how more and more uh, women in Hollywood have used fashion to leverage their influence. Some of them, it could be as simple as signing a fashion deal with a big label to get that money to be able then to take on the smaller roles. That's right. Fuck you money. Yes. Exactly. So this is not an advantage that men have equally. No, you're absolutely right. In this area. Mm -hmm. It's actually one of the few exception advantages that women in the business have over men. Well, now I will throw it back to you because way to make it uh, a feminist perspective. You're right. The women uh, out-endorse men probably three or four to one in terms of the kinds of products that they take on. Nobody needs a man advertising a, you know, a moisturizer or a uh, a watch line or whatnot. They're kind of limited to cars and liquor. Yep. Uh, So I appreciate that. Yasik actually a couple of years ago now, maybe it was last year, sent me an article um, on Adweek and it was uh, industry specialists discussing the viability of social media and branding. And by by a huge margin, women make more money on social media with endorsements than men. And of course, we know social media is the way, right? It's the happy, charming stars all around it. That's what everybody wants. They want who's an Instagram influencer, who's a Twitter influencer, who's a Snapchat influencer. It is the women who are getting those opportunities, not the men. So now you have, listen, I'm not, I'm like, it's, it's going to be interesting black dresses and it will be an interesting conversation to be like, who's the best black dress, the best strapless black dress, the best halter black dress, the best short, the best waisted, the best cinched. But again, to go back to your point, which I love, is it a mourning period? And is it actually shutting down an area of advantage? I mean, I don't know if it's shutting down an area of advantage because it will be there. And because as you say, the commodification of fashion has always been the sort of idea of 
show one thing, cover up something else, right? Somewhere, some designers are stewing and other ones are like, then it's going to be about architecture and lines and, you know, right. because we're not playing in color, we're going to play in everything else. Uh, so I don't know if it's shutting down that advantage per se. There will always be other places and other opportunities. And I'm sure that there are emails going around. Like I could write a whole uh, epistolary novel based on this, like just emails from somebody going, but like, does it count at the Independent Spirit Awards? <laughs> but like, if we're going to private dinners, like, yeah. does that, can I wear a color then? Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, in fact, this was, uh, I, that's going to be my project is a, a fun little, little, yeah, you know, but I feel as though there are always advantages that you can find. There are always angles that you can take. My question is, who is going to violate the the pledge, if any? I hope Mary J. Blige. Interesting. You're Mary J. Blige, right? You're I, I'm always Mary J. Blige. Yeah. Go on. Mary J. Blige. And you uh, are in Mudbound. Everybody's like, holy fucking shit, Mary J. Blige can act. It is the performance of a career, like, and maybe like, or the performance to kick off a career in acting. Let's say that. I love that. I love that a second career approaches now that she's 50. Everybody's talking about Mary J. Blige, not the singer, but the actress. She's nominated for a Golden Globe. Her chances of getting a nomination for an Oscar are getting better and better. But you know the industry, right? Black woman of a certain age. When is she going to get back there? When is she going to get back there? Well, so, uh, you know, we hope often, right? We hope, we hope that, so. Yeah. But, uh, you know, your points to come later about percentages of who was nominated for looking at the SAGs, let's table that for a minute. Yeah. Okay. So it is your first award season as an actress and you're Mary J. Blige. You've already had to fucking work harder probably than a lot of the Reese's and the Nicole's. Not to be a dick here about like, uh, you know, the Olympics on who has to work harder, but we've talked about intersectionality and we've talked about who's at the front of the line and who's at the back of the line. I would almost say it's two different games, right? Not just because of uh, bias about people of color, women of color, women of age, but also those women, Reese and Nicole, have giant bodies of work uh, that they're building upon. And Mary J. Blige is for our purposes, coming in cold. Yep. Now that's my preamble. I've tried to lay down all those points. Yep. And now they're like, but you have to wear black. <laughs> if you're Mary J. Blige, I'm Mary J. Blige. I'm like, fuck that. I want this moment. I want all the moments. Yeah, sure. I, I buy that. And I think that- So the- I hope she violates it. Now, if you were Mary J. Blige, do you try and get people to go along with you? Do you- cultivate exceptions because the other thing is, and, you know, not to get too far down a path that we didn't uh, expect to go down, but one of the things that we know and have discussed uh, on the blog, in here in general, campaigning for awards is a whole set of complicities, right? Yes. Like years ago, uh, Monique was very vocal about uh, the campaign or lack of campaign for Precious mm-hmm. and what she would or would not do. But basically, there's a handshake deal or sometimes more than a handshake deal among between you and your producers that if you are going to 
secure a nomination or they're going to work to secure a nomination for you in some cases and promote the movie and get all the screenings out, that you are going to show up, employ a stylist, do all of those kinds of things, right? Yep. So if you're Mary J. Blige, for example, and you have a studio behind you and there's promotion happening and maybe somebody's paying for a stylist to get you all there and whatnot, are you going to bite those hands? Uh, by, you know, trying to violate this new code? Or do you try to work within it? Do you try to say, no, I belong here. I am, even though this is my first role, and that's my preamble, is that Reese and Nicole, I don't think either of them would hold up any first roles that they had and say, look, this is worthy of an award. This right. is why Mary J. Blige is on a different playing field, right? Yeah. Um, it's not her first, first role, but it's very close. Yeah. Uh, do you sort of say, let me find a way to play in this new sandbox to show that I can, uh, that I do belong here, that I'm not just a sort of novelty creature from the music world? I say no. I say no, you don't play along. What do you guys say? What do you think? What would you do? Uh, I often like to talk like I am a shit disturber, but I'm not sure this is the place where I would be that. And that might be to my own detriment. So what would you guys do? I want Mary J to disturb the shit. Like everybody else in black and Mary J comes out in fucking gold. Orange. Yeah. And here's my other question. Like does it have to be all black? Can it be all black but the sleeves are gold? Like what <laughs> What are we talking about here? Well, there you go. This is why look, guys, we are I hope we have proven ourselves to be reliable and also discreet. You send us emails. We love them. We never talk about names unless people ask us to mention their names. If you have a line on this email that is going around about the black dresses, can you please send it to us? Just excerpt it. You don't even have to forward it. We don't need to see email addresses. If you have access to the black dress email or whispers of it, we would love to see it. You would make our holiday. Uh, So you mentioned Reese and Nicole, and I love that, like, now that's a thing that we say, like, uh, Reese and Nicole, Bert and Ernie, um, like, they're a pair now. Because, of course, they're going to be all over the awards uh, with Big Little Lies, which got a bunch of nominations. Uh, But this is a story you have been loving. Uh, Maybe love this story. Maybe not necessarily the nominations they deserve, or maybe yes. Well, I love that it's actually become an award show tradition. It's happened for the lo- it's happened for the last four or five years now. A category fraud. So a couple years ago, it was whether or not I think it was like who like Rooney Mara should have been nominated in. Oh no no no! It was Alicia Vikander. Yes, should right? have been best lead actress. Lead actress instead of supporting, but they submitted her in the supporting. And listen, the work she did in that film was pretty much lead. And so she's she's in a category with people who have, what, 25 to 30% less screen time. Right. Um, it's gaming the system a little yeah. bit. And you're right. It's far from the first time. That's right. But this one felt a little different. Yes. So uh, for the uninitiated, uh, Big Little Lies, uh, and if you haven't watched it, your amnesty period extends, I'm going to say, extends up to the airing of the Golden Globes. If you have not watched it, you have the holiday season. Yes. You have the very earliest part of January, and then you need to get on board. Yes. Uh, It will have been a year. But Big Little Lies 
uh, was a 10-part. Eight. Was it eight? Seven, I think, even. Oh, yeah. I remember, like, yeah. wanting to dole them out. Yeah. So a seven-hour limited series based on, and this is key, based on the book Big Little Lies. If you've read the book, the miniseries that we watched in January and February is incredibly faithful to what happens in the book. Like, almost to the letter. And then there started being the whispers, like maybe as soon as the show finished, right? In April and May about like, can there be more? Can they extend? And everybody went, no, no, it was a limited series. Jean-Marc Vallée, blah, blah, blah. You can't. And then the whispers started to pick up steam and maybe Leanne Moriarty is talking about maybe she could come up with a story and so forth. And then we learned uh, just, you know, in the last couple of weeks, yes, there will be a second series, to use a British term on purpose, of Big Little Lies, that there will be a second season, which by definition makes the show not a limited series. Right. But? But, so apparently, according to The Hollywood Reporter, everybody got pissed or everybody but HBO got annoyed because they said that... uh, HBO strategically waited until after the Emmys and after the Golden Globe nominations were announced and maybe even after the SAG deadline had passed to confirm that there would be officially, hey, yes, we're doing this, a second season of Big Little Lies. And they're claiming that it was a deliberate move so that they could get into the category of limited, outstanding limited series. The reason why is because if they are not in the limited series category, then they they then move to the drama category. And that would put them up against Game of Thrones, The Handmaid's Tale, Stranger Things, This Is Us. Not to take anything away from the limited series category, but the drama series category is much more competitive with like legitimate five to six heavyweights that you're going toe-to-toe against. In terms of series themselves… Absolutely. Not to mention the performers in those categories, right? Elizabeth Moss. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah. Elizabeth Moss uh, is and deserves uh, to win that award, you know, yeah. for The Handmaid's Tale. Even then, she has competition in those categories as well as, uh, you know, if I am correct, and let me call up the nominations here just to be sure… Well, let's while you're doing that, let's be clear. It's not the Game of Thrones and the Handmaid's Tales and the Stranger Things who are worried about Big Little Lies. Like nobody nobody in the drama category is pissed here. The accusations of category fraud are coming from the limited series contenders. And one in particular, that would be Feud. Right. <laughs> Because Feud, of course, is Jessica Lange and uh, Susan Sarandon. Uh, And again, this is just to further uh, underscore your point. We're not even talking here about the best limited series award. That's an important award. Yes. But by putting the women (laughs) into these categories, we're talking about acting awards. We're talking about who gets these because… You, when you distribute them over these categories, you could have three or four wins. That's right. So basically, what we're saying is it was it's ba- it was down to Jessica Lang and Nicole Kidman. Okay, like can we just 
Let's talk about that. Well, let's just break that down for a second. Uh, first of all, uh, we should point out that in the Best Supporting Actress in a Series or Miniseries, uh, Shailene Woodley and Laura Dern represent uh, Big Little Lies alongside Michelle Pfeiffer and Anne Dowd and Chrissy Metz. And uh, I don't think that uh, Big Little Lies will win there or deserves to win there because there is one clear frontrunner. Email me if you don't know who. Yes. Uh, but yes, in the Best Actress in a Miniseries or Motion Picture, we have Susan Sarandon, Reese Witherspoon, Jessica Lange, Nicole Kidman, and Jessica Biel. This is in the Golden Globes. That's right. That's right. So at the Emmys, it was almost the same except for Jessica Biel. Like all those people were also in there. But the race was really between Nicole Kidman and Jessica Lange. Sure. So that would be Big Little Lies and Feud. Right. And so now that people are making accusations of category fraud and deliberate um, you know, timing so that Nicole could get in. The let's can we just, you know, the Hollywood reporter was like, uh, people are upset with big little lies, and um now the producers guild has reshuffled, and in the producers guild awards, big little lies will be considered a drama instead of a limited series, blah, blah, blah. And everybody is so disappointed. Not everybody. Like, can we just can we just focus on who the everybody is? Or you could focus on who's not disappointed because when I look at this Golden Globe category, when I look at uh, – we're familiar with the concept of votes canceling each other out, yeah. right? If you love Feud, you might love Jessica Lang mm -hmm. and Susan Sarandon equally. Yeah. So votes might be split there. Right. If you love Big Little Lies, you might vote equally for Reese Witherspoon or Nicole Kidman. You said it's Nicole Kidman versus Jessica Lang, yeah. but – Despite having the slightly less meaty role, I preferred Reese Witherspoon. I thought she had the better, more arresting performance overall. But if the votes are split in those two categories, you know what this means. Hello, Jessica Biel. Jessica Biel <laughs> wins a Golden Globe and you get to see uh, Justin Timberlake accept the award on her behalf. <laughs> Let's add another name to that person who's pissed. Jessica Biel finally gets nominated for an acting award on her own and has to wear a black dress. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but unlike some, Jessica Biel looks good in black. Maybe it'll be like those mermaid dresses. You know, like those mermaid pillows where they look red in one direction and yeah. green in another? Maybe they can all look black in one direction, <laughs> like gold when you sweep them the other way. Anyway, so, yeah, all this, all this to say that HBO um, – and David E. Kelly have since spoken, since the accusations of category fraud have come out, which is what I really wanted to talk to you about. Because as you mentioned, the series or the season or the miniseries, whatever we want to call it, yeah. was true to the book. There is only one book. That's right. So it made a series based on a standalone novel about a, a series of people. Yes. Which is what HBO and David E. Kelly are saying in their own defense. We based a story that was based on a story, one story that had a finite endpoint. Yes. And I really believe them. Yes, me too. And here's why. You know, they, David E. Kelly wrote the scripts based on Leanne Moriarty's book. And then, uh, according to what we know in the press, then after the huge reception, after everybody said, yes, I would do it again and so forth. And I think that, you know, as much as we roll our eyes… 
I do think that group of women had legitimate chemistry. I think they did kind of see that they had lightning in a bottle, Mm -hmm. uh, not just from reception and critical reaction, but just from being on set. I think you can tell when there's real chemistry there that you should tap back into if you can. But then they have to go back to Leanne Moriarty, which I respect that they didn't just say, we own these characters now. Then they go back to Leanne Moriarty and say, is there a something? Yeah. She then takes her time to think something up because she's a very, very successful uh, writer. She's not going to ruin her uh, kind of profile with something that's subpar. It's got to be great. Yeah. Then she has to kind of pitch it to David E. Kelly, who then takes it and thinks it over. And can I make that into eight or 10 or whatever parts. And can I make something big enough for Zoe Kravitz in there because she needs her due this year. And he takes it to HBO and so forth. All this to say, it's a lot of ifs. It's a lot of Mm -hmm. if this works, then yes. I've Mm -hmm. talked before about how the television industry and movie industry, but especially television, is built on a pyramid that like there are things that are designed to go to step one and no further, step two and no further. This is one of those things that could have been axed at every level before this. So while I like nod in solidarity with those who are annoyed, it doesn't feel like just category fraud here. It does feel like a a happy accident that they conveniently didn't mention until it was time. Yeah. I I believe that probably the second season was already determined like back in August, let's say. I'd say it like, was I mean, hopeful, but sure. I, I feel like if you want to contend on the grounds of that, but that said, that series, those seven episodes, 100% were always intended to be standalone. As opposed to the, I mean, a really, really good comparison here is The Handmaid's Tale. Yes. Also based on. One book. One that, book. That ends at the end of the episodes we watched so far. That's right. And the difference there is in that book, there is like an epilogue kind of thing. Yeah. Where Margaret Atwood projects forward, you know, three or four hundred years or so. Like in my mind, I always read it to look like at least three generations later. Right. But that epilogue comes right after a cliffhanger. And that cliffhanger is what we saw. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So that epilogue is like historians and academics studying Gilead. Mm-hmm. And it's suggested that Gilead went forward for some time. So that's what that's what The Handmaid's Tale, the series, is based on. However, and remind me of the name of the showrunner, his name, Brian? Uh, uh, Bruce Miller. Okay. So Bruce Miller as opposed to David A. E. Kelly, actually like planted in the writing of season one, like a dot, dot, dot. And when you, when you, which I have done, I can say, I've read a lot about the making of The Handmaid's Tale. I've read a lot from Elizabeth Moss. For them, they were always hoping. In the making of season one, that there would be a season two. That's right. That there's an appetite for more, that you can expand yes. the world. Yes. That's right. David E. Kelly and Jean-Marc Vallée, from the beginning, from the first episode, the intention was seven, and this is the story, and there's a full stop. That's right. And, you know, had it gone a different way, they might have said, oh, let's do 
another series of seven on another of Leanne Moriarty's books. You know, like that could have been another way to sort of like right. keep the family together, but whatever. They didn't know. I believe legitimately that they did not know they were going this way. And I know you said, oh, I think the story was done in August uh, or the deals were done in August. Sure, yeah. But, you know, people have to like negotiate and then agents get on the phone. They're like, well, you had such a big deal and they hold things up. So it's not as it's not as uh, unbelievable as it might seem that it takes a while to get this all together. I will say, too, that if you're thinking about Big Little Lies and its timing, uh, Big Little Lies premieres in February. It's just a month after the Women's March. When they filmed it, they could have never known that 2017 would have become what 2017 became. The series premiered in February, just two weeks or so, or a week or so before the Women's March. From then, um, we saw the series unfold and we watched Celeste's story. Um, And it was a story of a survivor. And then... You know, fast forward about four or five months after that, and a big story explodes on the scene in Hollywood about women, about the treatment of women. To me, there is something there. If you are the producers, if you are Reese and Nicole, you're also saying to yourselves, our, while we could never have known what our show would become for people, our show also, like The Handmaid's Tale came out at a time that was so in, unintentionally apt. Yeah. And so don't don't we now maybe have I, responsibility is a big word, but don't we now have a different modus motive? Don't we now have a different sense of purpose? One of Do you my, get what I'm trying to say? I know exactly what you're trying to say. One of my favorite phrases uh, for sort of show business in general, which I think I've mentioned on this podcast before, is something that I learned from a fantastic book uh, written by Linda Obst. Uh, the book is called Hello, He Lied. Uh, and the phrase is, ride the horse in the direction it's going. If you are desperate to be a poet but people keep calling you to write, uh, you know, kids' animation stories. At a certain point, it doesn't mean you don't get to be a poet. It means see what you can do writing your way through kids' animation. See what's happening there. Obviously not if it makes you miserable, but ride the horse in the direction it's going. Feel the flow. Try not to fight against the tide. And I feel like this is very much that, you know. Had, for whatever reason, Big Little Lies happened in 2008, 2009, when everybody was obsessed with, like, vampires and zombies, and that was sort of the type of storytelling that would happen, uh, this would not be such a groundswell. There would not be such an appetite for, let's see these women do this again. Let's see them be flawed and three-dimensional and make it through anyway again. Uh, But... This is where we are now. This is this is what's happening. So yeah, I hear you. It's not a responsibility as much as it is an opportunity. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, I think we're here for it. And, you know, category shenanigans aside, uh, I think we're also coming to a point where 
a lot of these categories are super outdated because there continue to be series that, you know, don't fall within qualification windows or that don't, uh, don't adhere to, you know, there can be minimum numbers of hours or whatever, but, uh, and comedies are half hours and so forth. And that is increasingly less true, but, uh, I, I think it's worth whatever sort of hilarious slash uncomfortable category shuffle uh, to get these stories that don't necessarily fit anywhere else. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So in terms of talking about stories that have a unique timing and being really present for women, uh, and we talked earlier about, or I was talking about how for people in the business, there are a lot of men's movies, boys' movies that are considered sort of the touchstones. Uh, I've been really interested in the enthusiasm around Lady Bird uh, and around Saoirse Ronan. There are a couple of things here that are really interesting, Uh, but I saw the movie a few weeks before you did, and I don't think we've talked about it since you saw it. So what did you think uh, you were going to see before you went in? I don't know. I, I didn't know, I didn't really have a lot of expectations. That's not to say I was going in with low expectations. I just didn't know what it was. For those of you who haven't seen Lady Bird yet, uh, I definitely recommend that you see it. It is a coming-of-age story about a 17-year-old, 18-year-old girl living in Sacramento. They're very specific about where she lives. Uh, and it is fundamentally a sweet story. And I bring that up because it's, that's not the kind of movie that is usually in contention for awards the way that this one is. That's what's notable about this, right? We talk about, uh, sort of the poster board movies that get award show recognition like Dunkirk. Or like, you know, like an Aaron Brockovich prestige movies, if you will. Nobody's suffering. Uh, like in that… Lady Bird would say she was suffering. Right, but… But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, no, it is a story about, uh, you know, fundamentally good people where, you know, the things that happen are the kinds of things that could happen to people that you know. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not a story about one exceptional person saving the world from terrible drinking water. It's a story about so many people. So this is fascinating to me. that is terrible drinking water. <laughs> anyway, yes, yes, continue. Uh, this is a, you know, a small story. This is the kind of story that is often told uh, indie films that people make and then they get lots of acclaim and they get dropped on Netflix and you're like, what is that thing starring Anna Kendrick? And then the creators go on to make bigger movies with bigger budgets. You don't usually see this kind of movie in contention for awards. Were you surprised? I was not surprised. Why? I I was not surprised because I do think that 
Greta Gerwig being the filmmaker has a certain kind of indie, cool, New York artist circle cred. But that hasn't come to any sort of mainstream success before. Uh, She, yes, of course, has worked with a lot of great people. She was sort of accused, and I use that word on purpose, of being a muse, uh, of being kind of an indie darling for a while. Uh, Yeah, she's worked with everybody you can think of, uh, with Noah Baumbach, uh, and has sort of, you know, been a co-writer. She was a co-writer of Frances Ha, which she also starred in, which people loved. Um, And then, of course, I I remember Maggie's Plan, which was a hilarious, weird movie, hilarious mostly because of uh, Julianne Moore. If you see it for no other reason, see it for Julianne Moore in this wacky movie. Uh, But these are all, you know, film festival movies, and they're all movies where the story is acclaimed and maybe somebody's performance is in there, but it's not a contender in the way that this movie is a contender. It's about, fundamentally, about a high school girl, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, And the last time I remember being, the last time I remember a movie about a high school girl being in contention for awards like this, it was... uh, Maria Full of Grace, which was about uh, a teenage girl who was also smuggling drugs. This is not that. It's yeah. a much smaller scope. So what happened here? Are people's appetites changing? Are people's attitudes changing? I hope so, and I wonder so. When you asked me if I was surprised and I said no, I was not surprised before seeing the movie that Greta Gerwig would be getting this kind of acclaim for the reasons that I just like for the reasons I just cited. After seeing the movie, what I am surprised about, or not, and I do wonder about, and I'll explain this right now, (laughs) is that I came out of the movie thinking a little bit mad. I really liked it. Uh It's a very good movie. I really like it. But what I'm mad about is this movie is a YA novel. Sure. And... You know, you and I talk about this all the time. YA novels get shit on all the time. Yes, absolutely. They get disparaged. They get disrespected. I There are people I love, like really, really wonderful people, very good friends. I respect them. They're like, they read a lot. They're very knowledgeable. And they fucking, a corner of their mouth turns up. Girls, women. I would... Yes, uh, yes, you're stopping just shy of naming this person. Yeah, but yes, I am. go on. I, am, I know. But like, I don't want to. You, you know. know who you are. We know who you are. Yeah, and they're like, oh, well, I need to read to- all of Tolstoy first or whatever fucking bullshit. YA is never taken seriously, which I think we do at Laney Gossip have tried over the years to be like, no, this is storytelling and legitimate and big and important storytelling too. And so I. As much as I like Lady Bird, what kind of makes me angry about it, and maybe I am not articulating it very well, is that, like, the same people that are uh, lauding Lady Bird and being like, this is the perfect movie, this is so wonderful, I feel that those same people wouldn't touch a fucking YA novel and would be like, well, YA, like, I'm gonna fucking, like, read the latest from this, not and the other first. Um, and that's what kind of makes me mad about the whole reaction to Lady Bird. Okay, you punch a pillow while we unpack this for a minute. Uh, I mean, you are very right, and all, but not uh, – you're very right, but I hope 
it's a positive movement, not negative. Here's why. Like, you can't even make eye contact. You're so annoyed right now. This is really amusing to me. Uh, again, it's because I've been holding it in for a week. Come back to Star Wars. Star Wars is the first movie, A New Hope. Uh, again, spoilers if you haven't seen it, which I'm the last person on earth, so I don't care if you haven't seen it. The first movie is a kid's movie. It is a YA novel. A teenage boy is kind of lonely at home, goes on a huge adventure, and becomes a man. That's the story of Lady Bird. That's the story of every young person's, uh, you know, movie that we've ever seen. I mean, we are unintentionally, intentionally making Julia Roberts the, uh, the theme of this podcast. If you look at Mystic Pizza, for example, that's the same kind of story. Uh, people have a journey, lives are changed, they go on. There's no laser battles, but this is kind of what we're getting at here. Sometimes women's coming of age does not involve laser battles, and it's not a less dramatic thing as a result. I also, like, I wish, we're going to have to get a photographer in here to get still shots for some of the podcast, because I wish you could see the grimace <laughs> that my co-host is wearing right now. I want to, uh, I've, I've talked before about... Uh, uh, an early showrunner who had a lot of pithy things that he used to say, but one of the other things he used to say was, uh, a teen drama, uh, on, of which I've done a lot, is not a teen drama. It's not like there are uniquely teen problems. It's a drama where the leads happen to be young people. And I think that's what the story is here with Lady Bird, right? It's a drama about somebody who happens to be a young person, and you can project forward almost as you can at the end of Big Little Lies or similar and go, oh, this is a story she's going to tell later about a turning point in her life. This is not just a fun adventure. This is something that is going to become part of her narrative. Just as you and I have stories from being teenagers or young people that are still valid parts of our narrative today. So, I mean, I, I, I hear your rage. I hear your anger and uh, other YA novels that we've discussed uh, today, like, you know, The Hunger Games or uh, others we haven't discussed, but uh, the the Amanda, Stendler, St Amanda Stenberg movie that came out this summer was... Uh, everything, Everything. Everything, Everything. Uh, those are movies where... Certainly that was not in award show contention, but there's, you know, it's being treated with seriousness. Uh, a Wrinkle in Time, which is the upcoming Ava DuVernay, is a, a child slash young adults novel that is being given a really serious high budget treatment. So I think this is a bit of a movement towards stories like this having relevance in how they're told. Uh, in being relevant stories that adults can consume. Uh, and where books are concerned, maybe, you know, I assume that that follows. But I'm not mad at it. I can't be mad at it. I can a little bit wonder about whether this movie getting this award at this time is because of, you know, the sort of movement because of what we're talking about. My thing is that women's stories have not been considered to be important enough to be in this position. Boyhood happened and everybody was like, yeah, nothing happens in that movie. 
It is a- For 12 years. <laughs> like, it's kind of a feat of cinema, don't get me wrong, to follow people around for 12 years and see that happen, but nothing happens. There's no story. And yet it was like boyhood. It's a sweeping epic about a boy. Even, God forgive me, Moonlight, which was an incredible story last year, uh, is the story of how a boy becomes a man. That is, in a way, a YA story. That's a young person's story. Uh, but until now, we haven't seen the same significance given to young girls and young women in, in film, unless, as I say, there's a bigger story around them, uh, you know, uh, drug running or uh, murder, or I'm thinking about Bastard Out of Carolina and sort of young people having these big important uh, roles to play that that make them adults. And this is uh, somebody who's a young adult being a young adult, and it's quite exciting. It is exciting. And so I'm not, I'm not trying to take anything away from Lady Bird. My frustration and rage, probably very poorly articulated, is, is really about, I can't help but think that it, it took like a Greta Gerwig with the contacts that she has and the resume that she has. You mentioned all the directors she's worked with and being a muse and Noah Baumbach to be like, for these people, you know, the New Yorker and the fucking Brooklyn intelligentsia to be like, wow, what a great movie. I loved it so much. When like, listen, to be honest, this is what YA is. A girl figuring out who she is, not getting along with her mom, fighting with her mom, fighting with her parents, fighting with her school, fight with her best friend. Like, and it's been sneered at, Duanna. Oh, anyway, maybe I'm just mad at that friend. <laughs> no, you're not wrong. It has been sneered at. You know, and another uh, example of this was Gilmore Girls. For years, nothing was more sneered at than Gilmore Girls. Uh, and then when it became a big commercial success, when Netflix was like, oh yeah, this is worth us bringing back because it's going to get us all the viewers. And it did. People go, oh yeah, people cared about that? Look, I had this argument with men about Big Little Lies who said in so many words, eh, that's not for me. And then some of them watched it and went like, oh, I, oh, I guess it is kind of. I had the argument with women about Big Little Lies. But the default is always men's stories are for everyone, including young men's stories. But young women's stories are not for everyone. Girls' stories are not for everyone. Or it's the brainwashing that many of us have had to endure about as women, about what real storytelling is. Exactly, exactly. We have become our own censors uh, in terms of this is a, a story that's important enough, that is dark enough, that is universal enough. Universal is a story that is a term that comes up a lot, mm -hmm. uh, that if the journey doesn't involve, you know, rape, murder, theft, or one of the above, that it's not a real movie, an adult's movie. Then it becomes a young person's movie. Or maybe it's a comedy. It's light. Uh, there's no greater criticism than light, by the way, especially for serious movies, uh, serious television as well. Uh, light is often the kiss of death. Uh, and this manifests itself all over the place. Well, we were talking a couple of weeks ago about... Uh, roles for women of color and what those look like and so forth. And uh, the writer of the movie Girls Trip, who, of course, since Girls Trip is, has 
done so well is getting all kinds of meetings, gave an interview where she talked about how the kinds of stories she's pitching have not changed, are always the same, but that she used to be told, eh, make them white women and that's a story we can tell. Eh, can you, you know, there's stories all the time in television, both in kids TV and in adult TV. Can you make the lead character a boy and we can make this show tomorrow? You know, this is your anger is my uh, optimism. I hate that you turn me into an optimist by uh, by comparison sometimes, but this is me going, this is positive. This is us looking at a small movie about a young woman's realization about herself and saying, yeah, this is worthy of acclaim. This is a movie where there are themes or tones or performances that can stand beside the bigger, uh, you know, uh, architecturally sound awards shows. Uh, so I can, I'm sorry, I have to see it as a positive. There is another thing about it that's really interesting though. Uh, so Saoirse Ronan is in serious contention here for some awards. Uh, and, uh, I don't know. Who do you think is the biggest competition? Oh, uh, I, I don't know. Like we said at the beginning of this podcast, it has been a really interesting award season because I don't know that there is like a slam dunk front runner for best picture and there certainly isn't for best actress. Uh, she's up against Frances McDormand, um, Margot Robbie, um, Maybe Meryl Streep, although the SAGs completely shut out the post, which is really interesting. Um, and also, uh, what, Margot Robbie, Frances McDormand, Saoirse Ronan, who else? Judy Dench, I think, was given is, uh, a SAG award. Is there a possibility of Sally Hawkins? Is Sally that Hawkins for The Shape of Water, yeah. So no front runner. And what I find so interesting is that Saoirse Ronan – uh, is not a new player here. Mm -mm. She was doing the rounds as recently as last year for Brooklyn, or two years ago for uh -huh. Brooklyn. Uh, and, of course, you know, has been around, did uh, atonement at the very beginning of her career and has had other interesting roles. But there's a lot being said now. She's doing a lot of interviews saying, well, I never used to be a part of Hollywood and my parents kept me protected and this is my first outing. She's almost playing the role of Lady Bird, of having a coming out party, uh, hosting SNL and so forth, even though this is not her first award show season. It's like, it's going to be, if she's nominated for an Oscar for Lady Bird, it's going to be her third nomination. At 21? Yeah, I think she might be 23 now. Like, we're not talking about... Um, you know, as you said, she's almost being reintroduced, like this is her um, debut. <laughs> but at three nominations, which is looking quite likely, this is this is kind of a veteran, which is a really interesting tack to take. You know, Saoirse Ronan was uh, she was not a huge factor the year that Brooklyn came out. I think people who saw it, which I don't know if it was that many. Uh, watched it, thought it was fine, but it was not going to penetrate the sort of 
juggernauts of the uh, people she was up against. The Jennifer Lawrences or Brie Larson's, Kate Blanchett and Charlotte Rampling were in that category that year. It was a non-factor. Uh, and now, you know, there's, yeah, maybe a much more level playing field. So here's the other interesting question. Here's the criticism being leveled at Saoirse Ronan. Uh, she is American-born and Irish-raised. Uh, she is very Irish. The name Saoirse is very Irish. Uh, but she is, she has an American passport, which is helpful when you want to work. Um, and she's being accused of being too Irish, of playing up the Irish. This is maybe coming from Irish people, but, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago after her SNL performance, there was a lot of criticism of, your name is not that goddamn hard to say. Like, don't make such a meal of the Sertia thing. And then there was an, an Irish accent sort of sketch that was quite, uh, that felt quite off to people, that she's really leaning into the Irishiness of who she is, which is ironic because, of course, Brooklyn was a movie about an Irish immigrant, literally, and Lady Bird is as modern American as apple pie. Uh, you know, I certainly forgot that she was Irish, and I probably remember more than anybody. So uh, I'm interested in whether you think this has half. Where is this coming from? From Irish people? Not just Irish people. There are there's a significant uh backlash against Sarah Ronan for playing up the the you know the St. Patricky Irish for leaning into an Irish stereotype is the implication. I, I mean, I I haven't it hasn't touched me this backlash. I wonder if it's touched you because you're Irish? I am half Irish, <laughs> yes. So I'm more aware of it, sure. Um, I I certainly, like I said, I, I and I have been trying to pay attention to all the angles of award season, and I don't know that like fake or extra Irishness, Irishness, yeah, is 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 going to is 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 being used to hurt her chances. Um so I, I I don't know how to read this except for all the people who are like, hey, it's not that hard to say. Uh, a week ago, when the Golden Globe nominations were announced, her name was stumbled. Of course it was. So, like, a lot of people don't know how to say her name. Yeah, but learn it, I guess, is the thing. Like, uh, you know what we know how to say? Kobe Bryant. It's not Kobe. Even though that's the way English tells you how to read the name. Um, you and I have gone several rounds over uh, the legal surname of the weekend, uh, Abel Tesfe or Tesfea, uh, depending on the sort of authenticity of pronunciation. But learn the name. It's not that hard. I think to, to your earlier point, this is her third nomination. This is her third sort of big publicity go-round. And so I feel like there are people going, the Irish thing is tired. I distinctly remember her during the Brooklyn push being on Stephen Colbert and doing kind of a a quiz with him with, uh, with Irish names on flashcards to kind of giggle at the Gaelicness of, of them. And you know, that sort of fit with the with the idea of Brooklyn, of an Irish immigrant. But I guess the idea is, is it enough? Is there ever a point when you, you 
when you need a new shtick, especially if, as you point out, Saoirse Ronan has been here. And if she's going to be here, if Jennifer Lawrence and Emma Stone and so forth are her contemporaries, and she's going to kind of continue to be in contention with them, does she need something new? You obviously haven't felt like it's it's that prevalent that you're tired of it yet. No, I'm not tired of it at all. Um, and I wonder if it's because, like, Sersha is not yet that famous, if at all. I mean, listen, you're you're she's not going to be on the cover of People magazine. No, but she doesn't court that just yet. She doesn't court it. And I don't know that she needs to. Like, this is somebody who consistently always gets high-level work. Yeah, absolutely. Like, the highest-level work. Like, she works and gets a nomination. I was going to say, and <laughs> delivers every time. Every time she has a role. Right. So if I'm... If I'm Saoirse Ronan or if if we're advising Saoirse Ronan, she, does she even need advice? I mean, I kind of, maybe this is where my bias shows. I kind of go, yeah, I think you have something else to say. You know, the, the part of me who acknowledges she's famous at a young age says maybe she doesn't have a ton to draw from beyond the difference between Ireland and the U.S. because maybe she hasn't had a lot of experiences to nod at there. Uh, And you're right. She's not dating somebody super famous to generate new stories, at least not yet. Uh, But I'm interested in in where the story goes after this. I'm interested in who she becomes. Yeah. I Like when I think about Saoirse Ronan missteps or where she would have needed be, like needed that okay yes of course Saoirse Ronan's like waiting around for me to call her and tell her what to do but where where I would have I would have said um hey what are you doing and think about this differently it's not even now it's like three years ago when she did that like movie that was written by Stephanie Meyer who um wrote the Twilight books <laughs> right remember that movie like uh, I, vaguely that is the one anomaly on her resume where I'm like, huh? And I think what she was doing then was she was trying to get in the game of the Jennifer Lawrences with franchises and with some sort of big box office, like a like Jennifer Lawrence has Hunger Games and uh, Kristen Stewart had Twilight, right? And so that was like, if I were looking back and seeing what her agents were doing at the time, they were like, Sersha, we need one of these for you. She would have been, what, 17 or 18 at the time? Sure. Making that movie, 19 maybe. And that, to me, was a misstep. And it seems clearly like she's re- like she's she's recalibrated and been like, yeah, thank God that didn't hurt me. And now I'm back to making movies with Greta Gerwig and I'm going to, I'm doing Mary Queen of Scots or uh, whatever movie. Like we're good. I guess maybe the idea is, and you know, as I sort of uh, look through her IMDb here, uh, Saoirse Ronan and Alexis Bledel played the titular assassins in Jeffrey S. Fletcher's action film, Violet and Daisy. We should probably see that in retrospect. Uh, but I guess the idea is if Saoirse Ronan needs a career that's going forward, and as you say, it's not like there's been so many missteps, but should she have a defining quality that is something other than Irish? 
because that's all the public really knows. That's all we really know, and we're arguably big fans. Do you want to hear or know something else about her? I actually don't. I think that's what made Lady Bird so effective. A lot of the people who saw Lady Bird, uh, because as we're saying, Saoirse Ronan is not super famous, like, you know, probably didn't know that this is not an American. As you said, you forgot. I lost in it entirely. Absolutely. Yeah. I I actually think that she was so seamless in, in that performance that it's to her credit right now is what she's doing is playing up the Irishness. Because you watch that movie and you're like, that's a girl from Sacramento. And then you're like, oh, fuck, no. She talks like in real life, she talks with like she's, I don't know, from, I don't know, what is Cork? <laughs> is that, it is a city. I don't think it's uh, where she's from. I think she's from Dublin. But, right. you know, it it stands. Your point stands. So I think actually that might be, if there is any strategy here, her Irishness is underscoring the brilliance of the performance. It will work for her for the next three months, maybe. And then going forward, I don't know. I don't think that we need to worry. I'm not worried about Saoirse Ronan. So it's a really interesting place to start our next conversation uh, because kind of uh, maybe a surprise nominee for a lot of people uh, was the Best Supporting Actress nomination for Hong Chow in Downsizing. Uh, and what was most interesting to me about this was, obviously, I was interested. I don't know this name. She hasn't had a huge uh, number of roles before. But what's so interesting about the nomination is that she is getting a lot of criticism for her portrayal of uh, that. So the character is Vietnamese, and she is of Vietnamese extraction, and she's getting a lot of criticism for the accent that she used in the movie. Yes. And it came up, well, first, when the movie was being shown in the festivals, she was asked a lot about it. And she's basically given the same answer. And her answer is that her performance is a representation and an honor to her parents. That's really how they talk. You know, the story is not exactly the same. We're not saying that. But she is playing and giving face to and making a space for her parents who are equally American, who occupy a place in the American landscape, and that's it. Um, she is beginning, though, it sounds like, to resent the question. Right. And I misspoke earlier, uh, though uh, Hong Chao's parents are Vietnamese and she's of Vietnamese extraction. She was actually born in Thailand uh, before they moved to the U.S., uh, but yes, is the child of immigrants, uh, her parents who live in the U.S. Uh, are, as far as she would say, uh, very similar to speak in similar ways to the person that she, that she plays. So here's the first question, and it's a loaded question for you and I, but can it be a stereotype if you know it in real life? Uh, yeah. I mean, in her case, what she's saying is it's not a stereotype when I'm doing it because it's true to me. Right. But I think there are people who would say 
Yeah, but sometimes if I say, hey, my best friend talks in this way, which is a stereotype of some other cultures, that that's not cool. So I'm extremely uh, sensitive to her sentiment and not just because a large part of my amateur comedy is uh, is working with my dad's accent all the time, uh, always trying to refine. But uh, But I'm interested in the questions coming from people who maybe don't have that experience, don't grow up with people who grew up in a different culture than the one they raised their children in. And I think that's what's to me really fascinating about this whole thing because the people who are um, asking her about this, like, hey, are you worried about the stereotype? By and large, they're like the liberal types who want to be on side, who want to, you know, who who want to who are the maybe the first to be participating in outrage culture who are like hey like is it you know this accent like is it okay and you know is it a stereotype it's very interesting because it's not a question for example i would ask her of course not because your assumption would be my assumption would be oh you're representing your culture Right. The end. A part of culture that you know. That's right. So it's, let me, I I tried to dance around this, but my assumption is that, let me just go back and, and so that I wasn't so bumbly and fumbly. The people who are asking this question, my assumption, are white. And to draw a, a clearer point here, not just white, but uh, North American for a couple of generations, right? I say that because Here's what I find so interesting about conversations like this is that uh, in this age of, as you say, sort of cultural sensitivity or hyper-wokeness or uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, one of the things that's interesting is that it becomes, we're now at the point where uh, in, in, now I'm dancing around, but in an effort to be sensitive, uh, there's sometimes an implication that all portrayals of people who are not uh, white uh, European ancestry North Americans uh, has to be positive, which is to say there's no such thing as a a negative portrayal of a person of color or an immigrant for another country, that that's not okay. And I appreciate that. I appreciate that it was only 20, 30 years ago that every brown person in a movie was a thug or a terrorist. Uh, But at the same time, when you want to represent three-dimensional people, there are three-dimensional people in all facets of life. And, you know, and yeah, let's see them. Let's portray them. Let's see how they talk. Let's learn what we really know about them. I mean, listen, I'd rather this, this push to sensitivity than the alternative, obviously. Of course. Um, I, but I do, I do think that it, it, we are all learning, all of us. Uh, me too, right? Like the of other course. day, the other day we had um, an author on our show. He's written a book um, about curry. Um, and, uh, his name is Naben Ruthnam. Hi, Naben. And so he, 
he writes about curry books and he calls them curry books. So what is a curry book? It's like, do you remember in the early 2000s when um, A Fine Balance, Rohinton Mystery and The House of Blue Mangoes? Yeah. You know, those are books that he would call acclaimed literature that he would call curry books. And he talked about the fact that after a while, because he is like a brown guy, he was expected to write a curry book. And And he was like, I don't want to write a curry book. Which is to say like cultural tourism Indian literature for white people. That's right. Right. And so that was his phrase to be like, that's a curry book, that's a curry book. Now he can say it, right? He can call a curry book a curry book. And so we were interviewing him and I was like, can I use the phrase curry book? Like, I don't know, coming from me because I am not of that background. And he had a really great answer. He's like, I know that you wouldn't mean it like in a pejorative way. So I know that your classification of it wouldn't be, um, yeah, like curry books are this. However, he was like, I was just in a bookstore and I was tucked in the back corner and a woman came in and she asked the person at the counter, hey, um, my book club wants to read like, you know, one of those East Indian books? Right? Right. And so he was like, that to me, it was a little bit more offensive than if you would, knowing what I refer to as curry books, use the phrase curry books. Um, And so I do, I, my point here is that I do appreciate all the sensitivity. I just think we're all learning where the nuances of it are before it starts to become a little insulting to the people who we're trying to protect and, and be respectful to. And that's part of it, right? That woman who asked about an East Indian book, one of those, yeah. thought that she was being wonderfully uh, open and, you know, inquisitive about other cultures. I am projecting. I don't know. She's maybe very, very enlightened. Who knows? Uh, But that idea of, and that they all have to be beautiful literature, right? Like this is sort of the extension of the YA idea Mm -hmm. um, that all books about other cultures have to be uh, thoughtful and gorgeous and delicate and fine literature. Like Are there pop books about other cultures? I'm sure there are. Are there books that aren't that great or that don't aim to be great literature? Mm -hmm. I hope so. That's not the province of, you know, entirely white people either. And I think that you're right. It's always about talking about it. Uh, But I just think it's interesting that Hong Chao is having to defend uh, the way that the portrayal that she chose based on something that she knows. You know, one of my favorite things that happened is I was telling you a story uh, about a year ago and I said, you know, uh, I passed by some people speaking Chinese. I don't know if they were speaking Cantonese and Mandarin. And you said to me, do you know what you said? You said, well, did it sound unpleasant to your ear? Because if it did, it was Cantonese. (laughs) Yes. Uh, With the idea that Mandarin has a different sound, right? That maybe would not sound as foreign to an an English-speaking ear. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that really interesting because I think that's an observation that only you know uh, and that is specific. We're always talking about specificity in storytelling, that if somebody speaks in a delicate, generic Chinese accent, not that such a thing exists, who knows somebody like that? Nobody, really, right? Nobody knows somebody who 
speaks uh like remember in the old movies like american movies but the people sound like they're vaguely british like hello darling let's go yeah. out on the town yes um but they're supposed to be in new york like, yeah who knows somebody like that nobody right yes so this is sort of what we're talking about about specificity is what makes like why does kelsey grammar talk like that i i don't know i you know it's interesting it, like is that it, it, He's been playing the Fraser character for like 30 years, right? Right. So it, at a certain point, did it just meld with his body? <laughs> or, or was it like or to go along to go along to your original point, like Fraser was in the bar, not the middle class um Bostonian. That's right. Even back then. Even back then. So did they give him this affectation? I, you know, I never watched a frame of Cheers, but was uh, was Fraser supposed to be coming over the bridge from Cambridge? Like he was, you know, an academic, right? Or he's the doctor, psychologist, right? right? But I mean, was he not from Boston I don't per know. se, but from, you know, uh, you know, as people say, oh, I went to school in Cambridge. I'm not a Cheers expert either, but I do know that, you know, the other people in the bar were like very working class. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but that maybe he was doing a bit of cultural tourism of his own, right? Exactly. By, by coming into the bar. Um, so all this to say, I find this really interesting and I find the discussions of, it's it's more about stories we didn't used to be allowed to tell. You know, I, I we've talked a lot, you and I, about growing up in immigrant families and I would tell stories in writing rooms of uh, this happened and my parents reacted like this or I'd make a suggestion the parents should react like this. And people would say to me, nobody would do that. That's crazy. And I'm thinking, except when it happened in my house uh-huh. and Lainey's house uh-huh. and half a dozen of the houses of people that I know. But this is more about why we don't always see our cultures, our lives on television, uh, because the dominant culture of, well, no, that's not how a white male sees the world and so they can't give that a green light, uh, is changing. And this is another exciting part of that, that an accent that maybe is seen to be uh, stereotypical or a less than flattering portrayal can also be like a real truth and you're getting a more authentic experience. And I I appreciate too that in our ongoing conversations about trying to include more representation and diversity, there are many people who who feel like it has to be also intersectional and inclusive, right? Sometimes the conversation can feel like it is literally a black and white issue. Yeah, especially coming uh, as a reflection out of the United States where right. that is the often the biggest cultural and race-based conversation. Uh, but by no means the only conversation. That's right. And so, and of, like, this is not to take anything away from, you know, Black people's sense of indignation very justified at their lack of representation and the racism that they have received. And the systemic, I think, uh, lack of representation. That's right. Right? And as as someone with Asian background myself, I have also tried to have very sensitive and nuanced conversations about and this is not like the Olympics of racism, but, you know, for me as a Chinese person, China has through history been a global power. Right. Um, and so there, you know, ch- in terms of like an, an entire 
race and generations of people being stolen from a place and forced to to migrate and then overcoming generations and generations and generations of abuse and inequality. Like, I don't think that as a monolith, Chinese people can say that. Oh, right. It's a different kind of experience. That's right. But when we talk about representation and we talk about art and culture and how much FaceTime for, you know, like in the most basic way to put it, Asians are very, very underrepresented. Sure. And I would say still stereotypically represented. 100%. And so in my experience, this has, this, all of this awareness is leading to all kinds of like people are stepping in it and we have to be sensitive to the fact that everybody's learning. Some patience is going to be required. I'm so happy that you said that because I think this is what it is. People are afraid of making mistakes and they're afraid that mistakes will be detrimental. Uh, And I got really excited about uh, a kind of a comparison the other day, a metaphor. Stay with me here. Uh, I've been working on a project about coding and, and sort of writing code and STEM and that kind of thing. And my research there has taught me that One of the things we didn't know, two things we didn't know. First of all, coding sounds way cooler than computer science. So had they branded it that way when we were kids, uh, maybe we would have been more interested. But second of all, the process of coding, of writing code, is based on making mistakes. You don't know what you've done wrong until you do it, and then you can go back and fix it. There's no way to do it without making mistakes. It's okay to make mistakes. In fact, it's fundamental. This is a gross oversimplification. If you are a coder, please email me in commiseration or similar. Uh, but similarly, when you're talking about race and culture and sensitivity and inclusion and intersectionality, there is no way to talk about it without making mistakes, without somebody saying, hey, over here, you missed this part, and somebody else going, right, sorry, yes, you please come up to the microphone. Also, let's continue the discussion. People are really afraid of offending, of making mistakes, and so they go too far the other way. And it's an easier said than done balance to reach, but I find it a really interesting conversation to continue to have. And I just want to reinforce that you got to make mistakes sometimes. That's the only way we learn. Well, and I mean, to that note, certain people make mistakes and they must be called out. Absolutely. You have to be called out, but you don't have to take that on as a cross that you carry around then. Learn, listen, and then do better. So, you know, on that note, recently, um, you know, if I can share a personal personal story, um, I, you know, in this big talk about diversity and representation – Part of it is about cultural appropriation, right? Mm-hmm. And hair, in particular, has been one of the one of the things that we've pointed to, at least online, that people have appropriated, and and it can be sometimes offensive. Sure, traditionally black hairstyles, That's right? Um, traditionally indigenous or native hairstyles, correct? Yeah, for sure. And so I had my hair in braids recently. What kind of braids? They're braids along one side of my head. Okay. So they were um, like, I guess you would call them uh, cornrows. Sure. Okay. And uh, along one side of my head. And 
So I was challenged by somebody who was like, you know, you've talked all the time about cultural appropriation and how wrong that is. And now you're copying a black hairstyle. Right. And I appreciated where, like the place in that, in which, like from which that was coming because 100% in modern culture where we've seen cornrows and braids like that, for sure it's associated with beautiful black culture and it's a lot of white people kind of adopting it and not being um, marginalized or judged in the same way. Right, exactly. That those… Uh, those uh, traditionally black hairstyles have been criticized yes. on black women mm-hmm. uh, and then praised when they're worn by by white women. That's right. Where it gets tricky for me, though, is that as an Asian person, as a Chinese woman, braids have been part of my culture literally for thousands of years. Right. And what you would call cornrows as well. Sure. Like ancient… Asian women, and I grew up on soap operas in Hong Kong where the female characters, the princess, the kung fu hero, all had those kinds of braids with ribbons tied to it. And we grew up, my cousin and I, all cousins watching these kung fu shows would always tie our hair up in braids and like in our traditional Chinese robes and play kung fu soap operas. So I… To me, that is also part of my heritage. Sure. Braiding. Um, And so it was a tricky moment because on the one hand, I wanted to be a little bit defiant. Like, mm, you do know that like Chinese people have been wearing their hair in braids like for thousands of years. You wanted to find like the screen cap and send. Yeah. Like I wanted to go back and find photos of, you know, those soap operas I used to watch. And yet, at the same time, maybe it is a fair criticism because I also walk in this time, in this culture, I'm styled according to these modern influences. And I would say that anybody who looked at me that day would be like, I know that hairstyle not because I watch Chinese soap operas, but because I've listened to this music and I've looked at that runway and I've watched these shows. Right. And to extend that, had you worn that same hairstyle 25 years ago, there might have been a different reception to it, right? Even if it had been, uh, even if that hairstyle was still from uh, the Chinese soap operas that you used to watch, the reception to it uh, may be, you know, maybe more palatable because we're used to seeing those braids and styles from a variety of different places. Fair enough? Fair enough. I mean, I remember I used to go, like, I was super into these Hong Kong soap operas, and I used to go to school in grade three and four with, like, a braid in my hair or as, a, like, an imitation. The The only problem is that, like, my dad couldn't do it very good. <laughs> but my suggestion is that where back then people might have said, why are you wearing your hair like that? What is that? Yeah that now there is an acceptance and I guess the conversation is, well, that's because of the work that has been done by… Black people, black women. Yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to put that out there. Yeah. All of… There are shades of different… Like that that is such a nuanced conversation because I do not want to revoke my claim to braids as a Chinese woman. And also you recognize 
what's there. I think what's so interesting about this is the idea that all, so many of these conversations are going to become gray, right? There aren't just right things. There's things where you have to kind of debate and discuss and decide for yourself what you want to do. Do you have a do you have a braid policy going forward? Um, I'm going to continue to do the braids. Like, um, I actually have started pushing them towards like more Asianness. Like in in the past, with the Asian kung fu hairstyles, for example, the braids were I wouldn't say more intricate, but they were really really obvious. Like it it's an obvious kung fu hairstyle, right? What's interesting though is it will take like someone who is Asian and prominent, not me, like a Hong Chao or a Constance Wu to make it palatable. Because if I do it now, it becomes a distraction, especially on television. I mean, I'm actually just thinking that uh, often what changes this kind of thing is runway looks. And I'm interested in which designer will send Kung Fu braids down the runway. Maybe you'll inspire them. Well, like… You know, early on in the history of the social, I was I was looking at some photos because I was getting ready either for Chinese New Year or some Chinese holiday, and I was looking at hairstyles, and I saw um, a, there was like a young Chinese girl uh, in Hong Kong, and she was dressed in traditional Chinese robes, and she had her hair in a middle part and then tied up in two buns on top of her head looking like antlers. Think of where antlers usually sit, but two buns. Mm -hmm. And I called, I was like, ox buns. Because I, of course, was born in the year of the ox and like, you know, oxen typically have on Short, their heads. Yes, yeah. And so I did my hair in, on the social in two ox buns. Um, and it was a distraction that day on television. Um, and so... I was given a note, like, you know, maybe that's not the kind of hairstyle that we can explore yet because you are on a show with three other people. We are trying to talk serious events. And if, if the audience is like fixated on this crazy hairstyle that you have, it takes away from the show. Got it. That said, I have seen, I've been seeing that hairstyle more and more. Right. So sometimes it's about time. and Sometimes and it's about letting, so then do... Like, and that's what's weird because it was true to my heritage, but I couldn't let it become a distraction. And then you see it more and more. And who do you let take on that responsibility before you go back to it, you know? And this is where we talk about the unseen work, the kind of, uh, I guess, emotional labor of intersectionality. God, I, I could write a thesis named that. Can you uh, point us in the direction of some of these hairstyles in the show notes? Yeah, like the Chinese soap operas? Can't wait. Yeah. I think that I'm, I'm going to try and find some of the clips from these soap operas on YouTube. Amazing. So we've come to the end of our episode, and it was a slightly longer episode. And the reason why we wanted to do a slightly longer episode is because this is the last episode of 2017 for us. We are taking a holiday break, as many of you are, we hope. Um, we will be back in January, very early in January, so it's not going to be too long of a break, but yes, we want to wish you all a very, very happy Christmas, happy holidays, happy new year. And as a final sign-off, um, we'd like to give the last suggestion of the topic to one of you, our listeners, who thank you for listening to all of our episodes and for your tweets and your emails and your messages 
This tweet in particular comes from Jen Arnold on Twitter at JenArnold22, who wrote to us um, and said, a show your work thread if there ever was one. Um, do you want to continue? Right. So she links to a thread by Nicole Cliff. Uh, if you don't know, Nicole Cliff is a uh, co-creator of The Toast, a website, RIP, uh, is a Canadian and general uh, uh, amazing Twitterer and bon vivant. Uh, she has a long literary resume, but this is her tweet thread that Jen linked to, and it reads, So I have a friend who in the earlier days of her career, obviously she's gone on to great things, was the most diligent fact checker the world has ever seen. Let me explain. She was fact checking a movie review, for the record, it was Soderbergh's The Good German, and as part of this process had to watch the movie. The review looked fine, everything was accurate, but she didn't remember hearing a particular line quoted in the review. She watched it again. It's a very dull movie, by the way, which I know because in her third attempt to hear the line, she asked me to accompany her to a screening in case it's like when you can't find your keys but a second pair of eyes does instantly. I did not hear the line. Now at this point, and considering she was making peanuts a year, I think most of us would be like, Listen, why would someone make up a line in a movie review? No one will notice. I'll let it go. Maybe that's just me and why I am not a journalist, says Nicole. Not my friend. She got on the phone. Eventually, and after many calls and much coaxing, she got Soderbergh on the line. She asked him about the line. Huh, he said. That line was an earlier cut that a few reviewers saw, but it was cut for the cinematic release. She looped the reviewer back in. They cut the line in the review. It went to press and all was well. It will not shock you to learn she became the executive editor within five years. But for me, this story has always been about the difference between being good at your job and being great at it. Tenacity, pride, a willingness to chase down possibly inconsequential details to make your work perfect. And not even your work, work you're doing on behalf of another. She's incredible. Whenever I'm tempted to half-ass something, I mumble, she called Soderbergh, and resolve to do better. Have a nice day. And then she actually goes on and uh, qualifies. Does busting your butt at an entry-level job guarantee your talent will be recognized? It does not. It does not. But there's great satisfaction in bringing the entirety of yourself to everything you set your mind to. And later on, she says, okay, she deserves the credit. It's Amelia Lester. The publication is The New Yorker. She became the managing editor at 26, the youngest in magazine history, and then exec editor of the dot-com until moving back to Australia to run Good Weekend. So. So with that in mind about work and about show your work, that is indeed great work. And the joy that you get from doing great work that we get from hearing about your work uh, and that you give us by allowing us to continue this podcast which means that, yes, we will endeavor, I will endeavor as an editor and a writer at Laney Gossip in 2018 to definitely cut down on the typos, <laughs> to stop rushing my posts as soon as I finish them, sending them off to Emily and to Yasik, to do my best at a second and third and fourth pass, and to do the same for all the posts that I edit, including yours. I will, uh, since we're now doing resolutions, I guess, I will once and for all eliminate the double space after a period, which has plagued me and plagued Yasek <laughs> with my formatting, uh, refrain from thumping the table or otherwise making noises during podcasts, and uh, 
make a larger effort at times when I use the same superlative in twice in the same paragraph. But more importantly than talking about errors, it's about being proud of the work you do and being up and out front about it. And we love watching you guys do it and you let us do that as well. So show your work in 2018, finish your work in 2017. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for your support. And we'll see you or sorry, we'll talk to you next year. Happy New Year. Bye. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.